right, here we are. Here we are. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome finger back. Finger guns, finger guns, finger <laughs> I guns. I know. Pew, 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 pew. <laughs> <laughs> Look out. Oh, coming in hot. Yeah. Uh, well, I will say uh, we are recording uh, just a few days after actually seeing each other, which was really cool. Yeah, you know? it was. We even had tried to record while we were together. Yeah, and, and Scott, and it, was, uh, it was a bad sound engineer. Mista- so. Mistakes were made. It doesn't mistakes matter who. <laughs> it doesn't, you don't have to. Good use like, of the passive voice. Right. We we attempted to record our first live recording of a group, like a group conversation. And the conversation itself was awesome. However, yeah. the however, recording the recording however, of it was not awesome. Yeah. And you know, my attempts, I probably spent, I don't know, half an hour, hour playing around with it within like trying to edit. It just wasn't gonna happen. It was not gonna be, you know, this amazing quality that yes. you all expect. <laughs> this, this this clearly high grade professional work that we do on a typical episode. Yes, that's right. So, um, yeah. So we're gonna try to we're gonna um we're going to work on we're gonna effort. Oh God. <laughs> uh, I know that's a, that's a for for our our older listeners, the ones who've been with us for a bit. We're gonna effort. Yeah. Getting uh, the group back together, get the band back together to see if we can re- record through Zoom rather yeah. than an actual face-to-face session. But it was great having everybody together. Ooh. These are all the folks that we work together um, with uh, the professional development that we've been doing with across the state. So we were doing some uh, planning for the future, and we thought we'd um, sit down and and do uh, just conversations about yeah. like what they what they've learned. And my hope is that's an upcoming episode, if not the next episode, you know, a few episodes down the road. So we'll see yeah. if we can do that. We'll we can see if we can effort that to happen i really need you to stop saying that <laughs> so, and that so i don't have to i think drop the mic and leave the podcast <laughs> i think that might be having the opposite effect of of you intent <laughs> it may be more motivational <laughs> all right so let me set up the episode because i just uh i've been on uh, like you know it's summer you know i've been teaching over the summer but i've also been reading like a madman i've you know uh, this has been where I have kind of like be catching up on some of the books that I've had like laying around that I've been starting and then not finishing. Um, but this over the last like two weeks, I've I've been reading like a like a madman. And so I just finished uh, the book we've been talking about, you know, here and there over the last, you know, I don't know, six, ten episodes someplace in there. It's How Minds Changed by David McRaney. And I just finished it over the weekend. And um I think I thought we would could spend one more episode talking about this, at least summarizing some of the bigger points, because through the book, it's 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 about like, you know, the art or technique of persuasion and not like in a, a dirty sense. But, you know, in terms of like at one point, they call it the dark arts, right? The dark arts of persuasion. That's right. That, like, um, and it's not that you are trying to necessarily um, persuade someone to believe what you believe, but you're trying to get them to confront their own ideas, their own ways of thinking, and by doing that, maybe causing some change. And so, uh, throughout the book, they introduce all of these different techniques, and they all have different names, like deep canvassing and street epistemology, and and a whole bunch of others. Um, and and eventually they land on um and i guess these were all happening at the same time in different parts of the 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 world in different you know in different industries right like one is around you know politics some are around some other subjects too 
And so they landed on the idea, the difference between technique rebuttal and topic rebuttal. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so they they lump all of these different processes of persuasion in technique rebuttal. Hmm. Yeah. And, well, and- it's, a, it's the shift is a focus on, well, I think, and we'll talk about this more, but I sure. think it is a focus on process in the sense of what is the process that someone's going through to come to the understandings right. that they have, as opposed to me trying to change your product, which is to say your what decision you've made through that process. So through through a process, however, you know, sort of kludgy and weird that process may have been, you've come to some conclusion about something. And so instead of arguing against or for or whatever, that thing that you've decided on, that you've made a decision about, that you believe now in some sense, it's it, these technique rebuttals are about, let's talk about how you got there. How did you come to the conclusion that, you know, all vaccines cause autism? Like, let's let's not let me I'm not going to try and convince you not to believe that I'm going to talk talk with you about how you came to that. Right. Yeah. So I, I, I'll let me just uh, I'll read a couple sections from the, the book only because I'm not that not anybody likes people being read to. But I think that this um, definitely, you know, characterizes the difference between technique rebuttal and topic rebuttal. Um Persuasion that depends on topic rebuttal responds to claims with facts alone. Mm. It's the preferred method of people in good faith environments like science, medicine, and academia, because in those environments, there's an established sense of trust and accountability that comes from a commitment to favor the conclusions with the most supporting evidence by the standards agreed upon within that profession and its particular specialty. So we're existing like you and I are you know, science guys were, you know, professors in academic settings. Um, in those communities, facts, evidence, conversations that are based upon evidence and, and you know, all of that mm-hmm. is it works. That's the work. That's the where that's the community we live in. Right. And it's like, okay. And this is where we, you know, we have a history of science doing this, right? Like big, huge you know, fights between like Newton and others and, you know, Galileo and all these folks who are doing this in, in public settings because there's an established process and established trust that happens. Yeah. That's not the world that everybody else exists in, you know, or the, or the world that we exist in, like in the rest of our lives. Right. Yeah. I mean, the rest of our lives we spend, you know, interacting with our friends and, and cocktail parties and, mm-hmm. you know, you know, our family at Thanksgiving dinner and, you know, the, the kooky guy down the street, right? Kooky guy it, down the street. I love that guy. I, that guy <laughs> he's who always... he's out there and you're like yeah. walking your dog and you're walking really fast because you never know when he's going to stop you and talk yeah. about, you know, oh, you know, he's going to come down the driveway to empty his garbage right as you're walking by with the dog. Right. And boom. Yeah. There yeah. You well, it's funny because like last night we were walking the dog and I, I described that our walk is like two dark forests, you know, like in every, you know, good thick fantasy novel. There's like the dark forest. You get through the dark forest. Yeah. There are two dark forests that we walk, you know, quickly by because it's like you never know who's going to come out and say, "Hey guys, how's it going?" And then the kooky, you know, conspiracy theories come out. Right? It's yeah. like, did you know? And it's like, um, gotta go. 
Gotta go. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Oh, just got a phone call. Yeah. Oh, hey, in a rush. Just <laughs> wanted to get this. <laughs> uh, just pulled a hammy. Gotta get home. Ooh, Sorry. Ah, ah. Ah, yeah. Uh, uh, hey, good seeing you. <laughs> but not good seeing you. If I'm not being really. Honest. <laughs> All right. So that right there is topic rebuttal. Topic rebuttal is when, you know, talking about topics is great. It's great, especially if you're you're like, there's a built-in trust, there's an established process, evidence, supporting evidence, arguments, all that. Perfectly fine. Yep. All right. Now let's switch to the other one. Persuasion that uses a form of technique rebuttal focuses on how a person processes information and what drives their confidence in one conclusion over another and makes the opposition to an idea the focus of discussion more than the idea itself and points out the flaws in the methods used to oppose it. Technique rebuttal asks people to step backward through their processing to understand how they arrived at a conclusion and whether the reasoning is sound. Bingo. Yep. No, I think I think that's, you know, I think that's the fundamentals of it. And one other piece I'll, that's very short that I'll read um, just a, a quote from uh, is he's talking about the same idea. And he says, you know, scientists, doctors, and academics, in those contexts, belonging goals are met by pursuing accuracy goals. Right. So one of the things he talks about is that is how, well, his the title of the chapter that he does this in is called Truth is Tribal, which is to say that you, when you are talking, when you are making claims, you are responding to the community that you're making those claims to or for or with or whatever, right? So you're not just making claims in a vacuum. So his point is that in those communities where um, facts and evidence and argument are valued in terms of accuracy, then you belong better in those communities when you behave that way and right. other communities um where that is not the the norm or the the way that you earn belonging you earn belonging in different ways and in those cases it's often by by being dogmatic by being saying uh, by saying things that align with the existing understandings of the group right and saying yes i believe this and i've found more evidence for this thing that we think is true yeah i think that for me when the the, the light bulb that happened in this chapter was thinking about our roles as science teachers because we have this one foot and also in our work as professional developers and and yada yada is yeah. that we have one world, one foot in this world where topic rebuttal is perfectly fine, mm -hmm. right? We're science people, but yeah. then we're working in this other world where technique rebuttal is required, mm -hmm. right? And that sort of like that dance with one foot in one world. And really we don't, we want to play with use tech uh, topic rebuttal all the time, right? We want to come into a classroom and say, let's just do this. Here are the ideas and throw them out there and just present facts and pre pre present evidence as if our students are in the same community that we're in because yeah. it's our classroom. Right. Well, and it's also interesting to think about, you know, what, what, it, you know, in a science classroom, what this means in the sense that, that shift happens even within a science classroom, right? Because right. If, if we're talking about like, um, I don't know, the happy sad ball, and we're trying to develop an explanation for that, well, in that case, topic rebuttal is is perfectly reasonable. Like, I, I'm going to press you on your idea, and 
whether your idea is better than my idea about this explanation. But now all you have to do is shift that to evolution or climate change. And suddenly you've shifted and now you can't use topic rebuttal with some folks because mm. it, it's no longer an accuracy goal oriented community argument. It's a, it has to do with the dogma. And so, so it's really interesting to think about. And that said, I think, Technique rebuttal works perfectly well in the first context, too, because you are saying, well, how did you come to this understanding, right? You're not saying your understanding isn't good. What you're saying is, I don't care about that. I don't care about your outcome. I care about how you got to that place because I want to make sure that you and I, or at least you, really think that that's the best way to come to that conclusion. Do you, as as the person who has made this decision... Do you believe that it's a, a strong, well-grounded uh, decision or not? Um, and that, I think, is really the foundation of technique rebuttal. Yeah. I, I think the other part that I, is really interesting to me about the technique rebuttal is that when they started to look at all across you know, these different like, street epistemology and deep canvassing and all the other ones that they introduced in the text, those are the two that you know, stand out to me because mm -hmm. you know, deep deep canvassing and 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 i think those are the ones that mcrain spends the most time yeah, with they're the big named ones right yeah but like the similarities in terms of the processes are i think the 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 interesting parts even though like you know the the one has nine steps the other one has eight uh ten steps it's like yeah. you know ultimately the very first step is exactly the same in every one of these mm -hmm. you know it's about establishing rapport which for us is relationships, right? Like right. to go back to what we are about, right? Is rapport is another way of describing a relationship, right? Yeah. You you have somebody who connects with you, who sees you as a person who doesn't have bad intent. Um, and that's that's what a relationship, at least in the context of teaching, really means is is a trusting caring relationship not in a in a like i love you man sort of caring way but in a in a i respect you for who you are and your choices and your decisions and i'm not here to tell you that you're wrong yeah and the other thing is asking lots of questions yeah which also the, right again right as as i was reading this i was just like going this is like so now i would say that when i I'm really good about doing this in the classroom when it's like we're talking about topics. But then when I'm talking to my, you know, my brother who differs politically, mm -hmm. you know, from me pretty like, you know, it's like I wouldn't significantly. I would call it like polar opposite or a diametrically opposed. We have some, you know, common ground, but there's not that much common ground. And yeah. I was just up to visit them recently, you know, my brother and uh, to see his ne my nephew graduate. We got into a big political discussion. We try to avoid them, but like I, and after it, you know, driving home, I was coming, I was going, darn it. If I didn't fall into topic rebuttal, yep. darn it, you know, right. and what I should have done was just start asking questions. Like, how did you get like, and if I would have done that, it would have been a different conversation because not, not to like, not to ask questions to change his mind, to help him because the, the topic we we're discussing was you know, really something I, th I think that he could, you know, if he had taken a different uh, perspective on and really evaluated his understanding, because the rest of his work is not consistent with that belief. Yeah. Right. And I yeah. don't think he sees it. And he doesn't like, 
And if I would have helped him, you know, see, or at least, you know, helped him ask questions or answer questions about how he held those beliefs mm-hmm. and, you know, and personalize it. That's the other piece about it is that with these, you know, the, the uh, technique rebuttal is all about personalizing these and make them like human, like tell stories mm-hmm. or, you know, bring in like experiences that now it's not about like them. It's about like some, you know, or the, it's about the topic. It's about the, the effect it has on people and mm-hmm. on like they were talking about the, that. Like, so one of the interesting things about this, is this is all like experimental, right? They've done work on this. Like yeah. they've, and the thing is if, if they, pull out they do these processes and they pull out the rapport piece not as effect, not yeah. at all effective if right. they take out like the the narrative personalization piece also ineffective mm-hmm. those two pieces are like critical ingredients for the effectiveness of this yeah well and they're related to each other right i mean yes. like the you telling a personal story about yourself lands flat if you don't have rapport with people and if you have rapport with people telling a, a story about yourself, builds that rapport and helps those people connect to your ideas. So <laughs> they're clearly related to each other. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think so much of this confirms how we think about science teaching. Um, and and I do think, you know, back to your earlier point, like the how you have to think about this across context. One of the contexts where we have to think about this most that we really need to think in terms of technique and not topic rebuttal is with with uh, the teacher professional development or the teacher learning right. context, because that's where you have people who have really deeply ingrained notions about what is good, what is right. Um, and, and they're not, I mean, let's be honest, they're not founded on much. Like they're founded on the, the apprenticeship of observation, which we've talked right. about before, right? Like you go to school for a long time and there are some teachers you like and those become your models for what good teaching is. And that that limits your ability to see what other possibilities are out there if this is what you think your ver- version of good or vision of good teaching is. And if you've decided that, then changing your mind on that can be difficult, right? I mean, because for, well, if you're a teacher and you've already been teaching, you know, I think we've talked about this idea, like you're having to to say to yourself, oh, I've been teaching for 15 years and I haven't been teaching well or as yeah. well as I could have or whatever. Like it, it's a threat. It's an identity threat. It's a belonging right. threat. You no longer are in the group of good teachers because you have to admit like, well, maybe what I was doing wasn't as good as I thought it was. And that's hard. Yeah. I, the That's one of the things that comes into the book um, that I'm starting to see in a lot of other places is this, this idea of, this, of belonging. Yeah. This, like you know, there are on most campuses, there's, you know, a DEI initiative, right? Mm-hmm. You know, diversity, equity, inclusion. But I'm seeing the shift in adding the term belonging to that mm-hmm. and yeah. and it's such a critical piece to be able to feel like you belong mm-hmm. and it's not that it's not like the i think people like tend to think about the other like those are the uh, other people need to belong we need to make sure no 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 everybody does mm-hmm. you know and that sense of belonging is such a uh, a critical element to all of the work that we're doing 
you know, not only as educators, but also as professional developers, as, you know, colleagues, as people, as parents, as, you know, partners, everything, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, again, it goes back to this idea of relationships, like yes. relationship is creating a sense of belonging, like in, a, in, in belonging to and f- with the person that you're, you know, that you're talking with or that you're in relation with. So, um, yeah, I mean, good. That's the, that's the basis of good relationships is belonging. So, you know, it's going to matter. Yeah. The, the one part I think that really, I, another light, light bulb moment for me was this idea of like, we all think we're right in the present tense, right? Yeah. <laughs> like we, and we're going to think that again. That's how, I think how they framed it. It is, you, you think you're right right now and you will in the future too. And they, right. and your beliefs will not be the same. Right. And, and, and it's retroactive too. Right. So all yes. these people who are like, Oh yeah, back then I thought X and so I'm, and I still believe that. And then uh, they're shown writing in their own right. handwriting where they've written that they, that they disagree with their current selves and and the current person is like, well, that's fake. Like that's not my handwriting. It's like, wow. Like our 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 mental process for protecting our sense of integrity and um, our beliefs is just so powerful that we're willing yeah. to say, oh, that that's like a that's a deep fake. I never did that. And it's like, yeah. well, wait, I. <laughs> and it's not like even even some other person. We right. probably do that too, right? Well, of course, we, probably go, yeah, we all are. Nah. Guilty. Right. We all we have everybody's brain works this way. Right. It's like yeah. we 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 tend to dismiss things that don't fit within our current, you know, sub- subjective understanding of the world. You know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, so here's another quote from this chapter that I think is really interesting. So um, because you know, a lot of it is a lot of this, especially with topic rebuttal or that that approach to changing people's mind using evidence, is that if if you give them enough evidence, they'll change their mind because they'll believe it. And that we can go back to the socks and crocs part and about how right. we don't even see the evidence the same way. But the other thing that that they talk about in this chapter is so if holding alternative positions might cause you to lose friends, lose advertisers, lose a job, or face public shaming rejecting what would otherwise be a neutral empirical evidence is a very rational decision. Like, because if, if admitting or saying, yes, I believe this evidence will, will make you excommunicated, ostracized, pushed out of groups that you belong to and care about, then as, as an internal self-defense mechanism, you're going to fight against that because you don't want to be, you social belonging, social death, they talk about, right? The idea yeah. of like being excommunicated from your core group um, is is foundational. And so so it is actually a rational decision to say no to evidence when saying yes to evidence has a social consequence for you. Yeah, that that I think is creates other challenges for us as, as teachers. Jeez, I guess. <laughs> right. And that's putting it lightly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like, you know, the the classic example of, you know, going back to the professional development context where you're working with a group of teachers and one of the teachers is like, you know, I'm doing all this already. I'm basically right. they're saying I'm a great teacher. Mm-hmm. Right. And now. they may and be, they may be a good teacher, yeah. just they're using a standard of evidence that may be different. 
Right. Or maybe they're not. Maybe they genuinely are. But the point is, like, um, I think you and I are certainly skeptical of that. But but then the question is, like, when when you confront them and, and I've done this myself very poorly, like it's you you confront. I tend to confront through trying to argue, well, you know, this is better. There's research that says it's better. And they're like, well, send me the paper. And it's like, well. Yeah. Okay. So I already I already painted myself into a corner because even if I send them the paper, there's no paper that says ambitious science teaching is always better than any other kind of teaching. Full stop. Right. That that right. doesn't exist because that paper is not possible. So anything and anything that's not that, they'll just say, "Oh yeah, well this was done in Seattle, or this was done in Florida, yeah, not, or right. this was done in an urban place, and I teach in a rural." You know, so just you the same way as like it. that 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 person who sees their own handwriting saying what yeah. they did in like that. Yeah, that yeah. experiment to me just was like bananas. Like yeah. the experiment. I, it, Scott referenced it was that they asked people on the day of an important event or like a day after an important it was like event, the like space a, shuttle or explosion. like 9-11 or something yeah. like what mm-hmm. what were you doing when this went off yesterday and they wrote it down in their own handwriting that the person collected it and then a number of years later collected some of those people and said what were you doing on that day write it down and then they're like hold on this is not the same thing that you wrote five years ago and they're like well that's wrong that's wrong they, they, I remember they, it correctly I remember it correctly. Like my current understanding is correct. My my understanding then was not. Yeah. Or this is not even me. This wasn't and even again, my handwriting. Right. And again, the thing is, like these were not opinions. Like, what did you believe about gun rights in in right. nineteen ninety five? This is like, what were you doing on the day that nine eleven occurred? Like, th- th- this is not a this yeah. is not an opinion based thing. It's like, oh well. I I just gotten out of the shower and the radio was on and I heard that a, one of the planes had crashed into a tower. So I went downstairs to turn on the television. So you've written that down as what actually happened, which is what I remember actually happening on right. 9-11. But now you're saying- At least, at least no, that's I, what you think I, happened. <laughs> right, exactly. So, But now I say like, oh, well, uh, no, on 9-11, I was with you know my wife and we were eating breakfast at the, di- at the breakfast table watching television and this it came on. And it's like, oh, well, that's not what you said the day after it happened. And then, and then you say, well, that's not me. I mean, right. and <laughs> that is so bananas. And if we're, if we're so easy to, if it's so easy to dismiss our own, you know, and we like, Empirical experience. Right. Our own empirical experience to like keep our current beliefs. Then it's only makes sense that we would also completely, you know, disregard, you know, evidence from research papers and, you know, because we would go, oh, well, that wasn't that wasn't, you know, my students or that was, you know, not in a 10th grade biology. That class that was done in a ninth grade biology class, completely different, you know, Yeah. yeah. Well, and for me, this this paints a really interesting new interpretation of something that we we actually just talked about um, at our retreat, which is the private universe work, and that yeah. all of the conceptual change work, right? Because the the conceptual change work is about these like deep seated misconceptions, and the point is, it's not that the the misconceptions are deep seated; it's that once we have a decision made we make we make a essentially an emotional belonging commitment to those ideas that make it difficult for us to change them right so 
So the idea, and you know, again, conceptual change in that model is all about providing evidence that that overcomes these misconceptions through evidence. And I think you know the foundation of McRaney's book is well, part of the reason that's not working in lots of instances is that it doesn't have anything to do with evidence. It's not about the quality of the evidence. So these approaches that we've taken in the past, where we say, "Oh, well, we're going to give people a discrepant event that makes them." disequilibriate and on their ideas and then they'll reorient to this new notion that's the correct notion it's like well actually it's a lot more complicated than that and and it's not just about evidence yeah and i, I think this the, i'm gonna read this from the the coda um yeah. this is the end of the book and this is kind of echoes the 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 section you read it says this is why we invented science in the first place Science is smarter than scientists, and the method is what delivers results over time. But for it to work, you must be willing to say you are wrong. And if your reputation, your livelihood, or your place in the in the community are at stake, well, that can be hard to do. Yep. And it's true all the way through, right? Even though we yep. say it's more true with scientists and doctors and academics that it's an accuracy-based system, it's not entirely and we know this because there are there are plenty of areas of science where there's lots of evidence one way or in one way in particular and there are some scientists who still disagree with it now sometimes that's a good thing right i mean you look at people who've who've provided revolutions in science it's usually because they reinterpret the evidence in an entirely different way um but that also is is different than holding on to beliefs that are old. It's creating new understandings from the evidence that you have in front of you. So, um, yeah, I think it's yeah, it's really interesting. Wow, yeah, this was uh, this was a good read. Yeah. It was such a, like a m- mind blowing read that I have like yeah. brought up in multiple conversations with multiple people, um, and. I think the hard part, and this was where we were kind of spinning our wheels a little bit last week with our retreat, is how do we incorporate this into our uh, into our work, into yeah. our professional development work? And I think that we're at the beginning stages of, of considering how to do that, but I think it's pretty critical because yeah. we're really interested in fostering change, then this is how we're going to – we're going to have uh, a better job of you know using a technique rebuttal approach in our professional development that just coming in and saying the evidence says this because they're going to armor up. They're going to push back. They're going to say, you know, but the, I think the, and this was a chapter that probably was the hardest for me to like digest was about the, the cultural shifts, Mm -hmm. like, and how you don't need to get everybody. You just need to get a couple. Right. And that's like on brand for me. It's like, you only need to get a couple of like, you only need to get one or two to make some. And if you can get some people to doubt their perceptions and they can make some like changes in this. And they talked about like different communities and, you know, how ideas spread. And, you know, really like most people are not in the early adopters and not in the Mm -hmm. deniers or resistors. Most people are in that middle ground. And if you can get people in that middle ground to start confronting or start to thinking about like, okay, maybe, maybe what I'm thinking, you know, isn't the best. And maybe they can start trying some things. And if that person is also in another group that happens to be having somebody in there, then they've now just found a community between those couple of people. And little by little, this is how culture changes. Yeah. And that's the part I think that was, you know, 
that's, I think, what we need to start to think about is how do we do that? How can we leverage that? And because this is a heavy lift, what we're asking teachers to do to shift from, you know, this, you know, didactic instruction, lecture-based instruction, this has been a challenge for decades. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think, you know, and and I think the the conclusion that we're coming to, which I think we've been coming to for a long time, but we're we're starting to enact this conclusion is that we have to recognize that a learning is a long process, especially for professional learning, and b <clears throat> that it requires space for people to make their own sense, and and third maybe that in those contexts people resist. Because what they want is they want to be, they still want to be told the answer. And I think the interesting thing is now we can even reframe that a little bit, because even when they're, they're being told the answer, um, part of the reason that they like being told the answer is if they don't like it, they can just ignore it. They can rebut right. it and carry on with what they're doing. And if they do like it, it just strengthens their position. But when you have to make sense of it yourself, you can't do that. You can't just dismiss it because you're making sense of your own ideas. You're not just taking somebody else's idea and deciding whether you want to keep it or not. So this, you know, we talked a lot in our retreat about people want professionals often just want resources. Just give me the book. Yeah, just tell right. me where the stuff is. Show me a video that I can watch about this. Can I have the slide it's, deck. Right. And it's like, well... None of those things are going to do anything for you unless you're going to do some sense making around those things with other people and people that you trust and that you have rapport with. And if you don't do those things, then there's not going to be professional growth. Like if you if you look at the places where this happens successfully, where teachers are learning and growing, it, it's almost always in a place where there's a group of teachers who are talking to each other about these things. Right. It, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to be a solo innovator where you right. just read a book and then you go into your classroom and do something different because you, you can't get past this, these mental processes that are blocking you from changing your own mind, right? That only happens in social groups. I mean, that's a part of McRaney's point is that we are just like pr- other primates social and we save cognitive energy by making quick conclusions because we know that we're going to compare those conclusions to other people in our social group to try and figure out what's the best conclusion. But if we don't do that, or if the people in our social group already all agree with us about stuff, then we don't get that diversity of thinking that pushes our knowledge forward. So it's it's just a really fascinating argument about how humans develop knowledge. Yeah. I mean, there there are there are you know, individual rebels every once in a while who are like, you know, just out there thinking differently, but it's not yeah. common. It's not, and it does, it doesn't. I, I, I even wonder about that. Like, you know, it's cause that's, this is like the, you know, you hear about the great man theory of history right. and how wrong that is. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, we can pick Einstein who is the consummate example of this in every instance, people say, Oh, well, what about Einstein? Well, it turns out actually Einstein's wife did a hell of a lot of the intellectual labor on that work with him and got no credit for it, but he was not doing that alone. He was doing that with other people. And that, that problem is that we deify this idea that intellectual individuality is the greatest thing, right? That if you are the smart person in the room, then you are somehow the best person in the room. 
not recognizing that to be the smart person in the room, you have to have other smart people in the room with you. Otherwise, you're not a smart person. And that's a that's a tough one. Yeah. There's lots I mean, of tough things. Yeah. There are many tough things. Yeah. But I think but you know, you know, you know what's not tough? Joy. Joy is not tough. It is not a tough thing. You knew you knew the transition was coming, didn't I you? Know. I do. Yeah. Well, do you have a joy or I'm, I, I, I have, I, you go ahead. You got a big smile on your face. So I think uh, you got some joy to share. So I had finished a book, you know, cause so I read some print and then some, you know, digital because like most of the times at night, like if I'm like awake in the middle of the night, I'm reading on my, on my iPod, I'm in my iPad and because I can change the screen brightness and all that. And I'm not going to wake up my wife or anything. Um, mm-hmm. And I was looking through, I just finished a book and I was looking through, uh, I use Libby, the library la- app, and I'm like going mm-hmm. through, looking for books. And I, f- I I, didn't know that one of my favorite authors of all time had just released a new book. Ooh. And it's in a series. This is Joe, Joe Nesbo is the author. He's a uh, Norwegian writer and he writes mostly around crime, um, mostly uh, with a, a guy whose name's Harry I think it's pronounced Hole, H-O-L-E, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so he's had a series of these books, probably like, I don't know, a, a dozen or more. Um, and I've read them all. And I read them out of order, which, you know, I regret that because I was just g- reading what I could get my hands on at the time. Um, but the last book was supposed to be like the last book. He was, mm-hmm. he was like, I'm putting Harry to bed. Harry's done. <laughs> and then there's a new one. Turns out. And I, I like, I was like, okay, I'm going to put a, you know, a hold on it. And it was going to be, it was going to take like 30 weeks for me to get this book. <laughs> and I like, mm. I wept because <laughs> I can't wait 30 weeks for this no, book. You can't it's wait just 30 that, weeks. No. So I purchased it and I'm about like, probably it's like a gigantic book. I mean, it's like a, yeah. you know, like 500 pages, which is, yeah. you know, and I'm probably like 150 pages into it. And it's just, bringing me great joy i yeah it's called uh killing moon if you're not yeah. into like serial killers and like detectives <laughs> this may not be and, a thing well i mean harry's like he is the most complicated character he's like one of those you know what what, what do we call those those people that are really hard to love you know the you know the, the protagonist you know, the protagonists who are like, you know, oh, really like antiheroes almost. Antihero. He is the most anti. I mean, he's cheated on his wife. He's been he's an alcoholic, a drug addict, all of this, but he's like super smart detective, you know, who always figures things out. And it's just yeah, it is it is really awesome. And yeah, nice. I'm just I'm so into it right now. <laughs> like yes. So bringing me joy. Very nice. Joe Nesbo. Killing Joe Nesbo. Me. We'll put it in the show yeah. notes. Yeah. Um, so mine, well, actually my choice, I had a couple on my list, but my choice was triggered by your your mention of the dark forest. Um, because I was recently flying back on an international flight, so I had to watch a bunch of movies to stay awake. And one of the movies I watched because a bunch of people had recommended it to me and as a as a good plane movie was Puss in Boots 2. And I it has a it has it, I know. I have not in in fairness, I have not seen Puss in Boots One, but Puss in Boots 2 was really good. I really enjoyed it. Um it's I mean it's sweet and you know goofy, but um 
but the it's just you know it's just really well done really well acted uh it's a good story i mean the core of the story is that you know puss in boots as a cat has nine lives and has and he every time he dies he comes back to life until he gets to that ninth life um and so this movie starts right after he gets killed for the eighth time and so he only has one life left and he realizes like oh oh my gosh like i only have one life left what am i going to do and then um he finds out about this wishing star that exists in the dark forest. And so the, the movie is about him trying to get to this wishing star. Cause if you get to the wishing star, you get to make a wish and he's going to wish for nine more lives or whatever. So anyway, wow. it, I, it sounds completely juvenile and I think it's probably pretty juvenile, but it's a, it's a good story. And you know, if you've got kids and you're looking for a movie, it's really solid. If you're, if you're is that uh, on Netflix or is it on that's Disney? a good question. I watched it on the plane, so I don't know. It's got to be uh, on Netflix or something. It's got to be on something. Disney, maybe Disney. I don't know. Anyway, yeah. I'll I'll figure it out, put it in the show notes. But, you know, I mean, it's it's not life-changing. It's not profound, but it's it's uh it's, you know, heartwarming and cute and it's about friends and it's about being true to yourself and it's all it's to it's it's all those things that, you know, those movies are often about, but they did it really nicely. You don't have to, you know, qualify the joy. It's I just feel like I joy. do a little bit. I do no. a little bit. No, we come in like all, with all kinds of wacky things that bring us joy. And that's just, yeah. it's okay. Thanks. It's okay. Thanks, Holly. I have to check that out though. It's, yeah. I I have like, you know, those, that comes in that Shrek world, right? The Shrek ecosystem. That's right. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's been, those have been like pretty mixed, you know, some of them have been. And uh, I don't think I've seen any besides the first one of the Shreks. I don't know any of the other Shrek-y movies. And like I said, I I didn't see Puss in Boots 1, but. I did not see Puss in Boots 1. At least I don't think so. Mm -hmm. Um, It's weird. Like some of the ones that resonate with me and the other ones that don't. Like I've never seen like any of the Transylvania movies, like none of those, you know, but the rest of the family has, they do. They make, they're making more, you know, same with the, the minions. I haven't seen many of those, you know, I think I saw the first one of those. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, I'm much more of like, like Incredibles. Those were fantastic. Those were fantastic movies. And, uh, yeah, I mean the Toy Stories and stuff like that. Yeah. But anyway, and some of that probably has to do with when your kids were a certain age, right? Because sure. you know you end up watching some of those movies fifty times if they're if they're at the right time point uh, for yeah. your kid. Yeah, Cars, Cars, Cars. So yeah, that that Cars. I've seen Cars like more than more times than I can count. I've mm-hmm. seen uh, a Lady in the Tramp two, A World Without Fences. I know you didn't even know they made one. No, someone. Probably, I watched that's that. Probably a good thing. <laughs> and Aristocats for some reason. Oh. Aristocats, that, which is that, fantastic. That was, yeah, that was one of my favorites when I was a kid. I, Somehow, I had that. I, I had that soundtrack. I used to listen to the soundtrack on vinyl, and uh, yeah. yeah, I was yeah. Yeah, Aristocats. All right. Well, you know, nostalgia hey. time is over now. We're yeah. gonna stop talking about you know ancient technologies and old movies. <laughs> VHS tapes. Oh, <laughs> those are so great. <laughs> <laughs> Betamax, the big Betamax. debate. Uh, let's not go there. No. Yeah. Now that would be, you know. And so tell me, like, why do you think that that is the best? <laughs> On a scale of one to ten, how <laughs> the picture quality is empirically better, as measured by. <laughs> All right. Well, All right. let let's just put that over there. 
And we'll see you next time. In between. Catch you then. Bye now.